Hello and welcome back to another week in the world of SaaS and SASTA with me, your host Harry Stebbings, found on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs, or on the appropriately named mojitovc.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback on that. Likewise, you can follow the main man, Mr. Lemkin, on Twitter at JasonLK. However, to the show today, and my word, do we have a special founder for you. So joining me in the hot seat today, I'm thrilled to welcome Didier Elzinger, founder and CEO at CultureAmp, the world's most powerful employee feedback and analytics platform. They've raised funding from some of the best in the business business, including the likes of Felicis Ventures, Blackbird Ventures, and Index Ventures. As for Didier, he previously co-founded Technical Academy award-winning Rising Sun Research, and is non-exec director at Tourism Australia, the Atlassian Foundation, and Slingsby Theatre. I also have to say it's been such an immense pleasure getting to know Didier since doing the show, and the learnings that I've taken from him on internal company structure and people management have been second to none, so a huge thank you to him for that, and to Iliad Index and Nikki at Blackbird for the intro, without which the show would not have been possible. However, before we dive into the show today, Algolia is a robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast, typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is a perfect investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers and you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search because now SASTA podcast listeners can get one month free at algolia.com forward slash SASTA with the coupon code SASTA podcast that's algolia.com forward slash SASTA. However enough from me so I'm now delighted to hand over to Didier Elzinger founder and CEO at CultureAmp. Good that's perfect okay I think we're warmed up. Didier, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today, having heard so much from Ilya and Aydin, and then a huge thanks to Jason Lemkin for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Harry. I'd love to get started today by hearing a bit about you and how you made your way into SaaS and came to found CultureAmp. My background, I was trained as a software engineer and then straight out of university ended up working in a visual effects company. So at that time, it was commercials and CD-ROMs and all that sort of stuff. And over the next 13 years, I worked my way up as first an artist uh, and then ultimately as the CEO. And we were essentially a visual effects company for film. Rising Sun Pictures is the name of the company. And we worked on Harry Potter, Batman, Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, all of these amazing films doing computer generated imagery from Australia. And about three years before I left, I went through Entrepreneur of the Year the Ernst & Young program. And we made it to the finals in Australia. And at the masterclass, I met two young guys by the name of Mike Cannon-Brooks and Scott Farquhar, mm-hmm. who are the founders of Atlassian, a small, small you know, Australian company. tech company. Yeah. And we were actually, our businesses were roughly the same size when we met. They were a little bit bigger, but not too much. And we became good friends. And I'm on the Atlassian Foundation board. Scott's an advisor of mine. And, and you know, chat to Mike, And over the next three years, I was watching their growth of their business and I was looking at mine and I decided they had a much better business model than I did. You know what? I I was running a service business for Hollywood and Hollywood is a notoriously difficult uh, environment. There's an old Buffett quote, you know, when when a management team with a reputation for excellence or good results meets an industry with a reputation for bad economics, it's the industry that survives with its reputation intact. That's film and visual effects is at the back end of that process. And I was looking at what 
Scott and Mike were doing, and they were building this essentially monotonic revenue curve business. And I thought, that looks much better than what I'm doing. I'm going to go start a software company. Was it difficult to make the transition? Because obviously you had a, a profitable and a successful visual effects company. Was it difficult to leave the security of that for essentially a relatively unknown software company? Uh, it was hugely difficult. I don't think anybody's ever talked about visual effects and film with the word security in mind, but it, <laughs> it was, you know, it was my life to that point. I'd spent 13 years doing it. I'd come in as employee number five or six. The founders of that company had put a huge amount of trust in me and I'd become the CEO and everything I knew I'd learned in that space. And it was one of those things where you had, I had to keep coming back to the idea. I actually tried to leave twice, eventually left on the third time. And it really was a very difficult decision. The founders believed in me, the company, you know, we had our ups and downs, but it was still an amazing business. The people were amazing and the work was amazing. And ultimately I just came and kept coming back to the fact that I wanted to do something bigger. I wanted the opportunity to make more of a dent in the universe. And I was still young. I still had the chance that if I failed, I could pick myself up and, and do something different. So I decided I would do it. And I basically, we had a long conversation. It, it took about nine months for me to walk out because it wasn't something that was easy to do. And then I sat down and I tried to work out what I was really interested in, what I was passionate about. I knew I wanted to build a software business and I had the world's most naive business plan. It was 10,000 by 10,000 equals 100 million. I want to build a business where tens of thousands of people, tens of thousands of companies will spend tens of thousands of dollars a year and I'll have 100 million or 200 million or 300 million dollars in revenue. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know what I wanted to focus on. And so I just kept coming back to people and culture. And I used to joke that as a CEO, I was a glorified psychiatrist. So I set my mind up that I was going to build a software company in the people and culture space. And two years of agony later, I kind of started the company. And I, I do want to start though with that space and the sector in particular, and then move more towards the structure at Cultram. But starting with the market, we often hear about the importance of kind of market segmentation and going after a very specific element of the market. But that wasn't the case with you. And you don't focus exclusively on enterprise customers, although you get a lot of pull from this. So why is there not this kind of inherent customer focus that we're often advocated towards? It's an excellent question. I think there's a lot of things that play into it. I mean, when we started, we started life as a company in Australia, uh, as a bootstrap company, we were bootstrapped through to a million dollars in revenue. And so we were focused on who would buy our product, who would pay. And, and we'd actually gone through the, the product that we have today, the platform that we've built the company around uh, was our third go. So, you know, the first thing I started work on was a performance review toolkit. And it's really interesting to see a lot of the stuff that's going on now, because that was something I was actually working on six years ago. And at the time we had a product, we had paying customers, but we just didn't feel that there was enough traction to really turn it into something real. And so it took us six months to kill that. We had a second idea, which was based on checklist manifesto, if you know the book, um, which was really around how you could use lightweight checklists as a sort of business process model, uh, sort of GitHub for business processes, if you like, mm -hmm. which was still in this in collaboration and culture and, and thinking about how to run a company. We, we killed that in six weeks. And then the current thing, we sat down, we created a PDF and I went and pitched it to 10 CEOs and said, look, if we build this, will you buy it? And four of them said yes. And we had our first customer, you know, four weeks after we created that PDF. So we were very focused initially on what have we got that somebody wants to buy? Who are the people that need what we're doing? And one of the ideas that had always struck to me was that so much of this space is dominated by large companies with large consultants. So we almost set ourselves up in antithesis to that. 
Mm. We didn't want to just go and try and compete with the Hay Group or the Connexus or so on on their turf. We wanted to say, well, only the big companies are doing it and it's not really working anyway. What can we take from that and apply to small companies? What can we do to give to small companies? So we started life really focusing on, you know, 100, 200 person companies. It happened to be a particularly good time in the Valley to do that. Can I ask, you said there about kind of the killing the two previous ideas because there wasn't quite enough traction. What makes you think about PMF then in a positive way that it's good enough to sustain it long term? What made you think that pitching four out of 10 and getting that positive approval from those four was product market fit? Do you know what I mean? How do you think about it and what it is really? Product market fit is something you only ever see in hindsight. And I remember I had Scott uh, acting as an advisor. So we had our sort of informal board meetings. And I remember talking to him about it. And there was this moment where while we were working on the previous ideas, we were we kept feeling like we were just there. One more feature, one more thing. And suddenly the floodgates would open. And it wasn't until we switched to the third idea and we went through this process and we started getting people on board. And I remember turning to Scott and going, ah, this is what it's meant to feel like. Before I was flogging a dead horse, but I didn't know it was dead. Now I'm on a live one and it's totally different. (laughs) (laughs) And it really was like that. Like I I would have sworn black and blue that I had product market fit on the first two things. I mean, obviously we didn't and that's why we killed it, but it was, we undenied a lot over that. And, you know, the second time we got better at trying to say, look, if we don't see this or we don't see that, we'll invest in a different idea. And a lot of it was, I mean, there's the numbers, but it's also just the visceral feel when you get on the phone and you pitch an idea and someone either goes, "Mm, yeah, maybe that could work. I'll introduce you to this person. Or someone goes, actually, if you can give me half of what you just told me, I I reckon we can do a deal. I I do have to ask one element on on the kind of market segmentation there. As an investor now who often spends a lot of time looking at SaaS companies, say you're not in Australia, say you're in SF or London where there is a lot of people you can sell to in your nascent market and it is tangible enough. Would you say that having such a broad market thesis is still applicable and viable or would you suggest being more honed if you weren't in a in a small market like australia without offending australians <laughs> no no not at all we're all offended that's right we'll, we'll beat you at whatever sport we play next um <laughs> look the, the strategist in me and you know i'm a big believer for focus and we talk about that all the time. You you can only do a certain number of things. It's much more important to focus on those things. I think the reality when you're in an early stage startup is that you don't have a good understanding of the market. You also have very poorly developed go-to-market skills. So you don't have great sales skills. You don't have great marketing. You don't have any real sales enablement. You don't have any collateral. And so in some ways, there probably is a specific vertical that you could go into and just focus on and do really well, but only if you had all those things. And so So one of the things that we found was that we were still learning and growing and building that muscle, everybody we spoke to. And it wasn't until a couple of hundred customers that we started to go, actually, that type of customer is probably not a good fit for our product or our solution. Mm -hmm. Or that's somebody that might look good, but might not work out because things look great on paper. Early on, we had a particular vertical that we're looking at. We got a customer who was an independent school. And I I liked the particular play and I liked the organization and they were great. But also I did some analysis and I went, look, there's 4,000 of these and they're all roughly the same size and they have all have the same needs. And so you could just see the business case straight off the back. And then once you realized, once you actually got in there that they actually have an annual cycle, it would take you 10 years to dominate that market. You were actually much better firing markets that didn't look good on paper, but actually were much better in reality. But in, in, in terms of kind of the business itself now, moving down from the market to Cultramp and the internal structure, you operate very much a team of teams model. So I'm intrigued as to why you chose this over, say, a more functional 
traditional model that we might traditionally see and what the reasoning is behind this. So actually, before I answer that question, I'll just make one comment on the segmentation. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it, go, it kind of goes to the point that you just made. Nine months into the life of the company, we started working with Adobe globally. Within the first year, we had 100-person companies and we had 13,000-person companies and we were working with both. We made the deliberate decision to skew smaller because we wanted to solve that problem. Over time, we learned to grow that out and we're now working with some great companies and some very large companies and we're actually, in a way, targeting the whole world, if you like. But through that process, we learned a lot about ourselves as well as about our customers and that actually leads into the point of why we run the company the way we do. Yeah, I'd love to hear as to the structure, as to why you did structure it the way you did. So a lot of this is informed by my own experiences in film. So I like to say, you know, every year there's an article that goes out entitled The Future of Work is the Hollywood Model. And the Hollywood Model goes something like this. You know, you're going to make a new film, so you pick the very best of all of these different skills and disciplines, and you bring them together, and you create a super team, and they make Expendable 17, and then they disperse and go work on some other film. And the truth of the matter is it doesn't work. Well, first of all, I worked in Hollywood, and that model doesn't work there either. But <laughs> if you step back and look at it, what it does is it, it underestimates the cost of teams learning to work together. It underestimates the cost of actually having to focus on a problem and then iterate the solution until you've actually found the solution. It's not what you thought it was up front. It's all the things that come off the back of it. It's like when people say, oh, I just want to build a piece of software. It's like, that's the easy bit, supporting it, fixing all the bugs, growing it, scaling it. That's that's the real business piece. When I came to Coltramp, I came with a whole philosophy, which is that I believed in multidisciplinary stable teams. I believed in working cross-functionally. And I've been sort of a student of what I would call Eastern Lean, so not necessarily full-on waste removal, but more the Toyota production system and a lot of the ideas that sit behind that. And a lot of what comes out of that philosophically is that if you could predict the future, you could create a beautiful functional model with a very elegant spreadsheet that had exactly the resources you needed at the time you needed them, and it would be extraordinarily efficient. The problem is you can't. And when you can't predict the future, you actually have to create a different type of model. So there's a book called Team of Teams written by General McChrystal, and he sort of coins this thing, which is originally we think that we're seeking scalable efficiency. But if you can't predict the future, you won't get scalable efficiency. So instead, what you actually have to focus on is scalable adaptability. How do you create an organization that can learn and grow and adapt to what's going on? The heart of doing that is basically creating a messy organization. It's creating an organization that connects with each each other in ways that may not make sense from a traditional model, but are focused on moving learning and growth around. So that for us is what Team of Teams is about. Can I ask, how how do do you create internal structure then within an inherently internally messy, as you called it, organization. So you still have structure. You know, there is always structure. It doesn't matter how you do it. There are always lines and those lines will always cause friction. But you sit down and you ask yourself what you're trying to achieve. So traditionally in a functional model, the the theory is let's put all of the engineers together. Let's pull the marketing people together. And we do that so that we can standardize the processes and we can provide, you know, clarity over what good looks like and we can make sure we've got people in the right place, et cetera. And that's great, except where you get killed is the handoffs. So when things are moving between the departments. A cross-functional view is just that to 90 degrees. So let's put all the people together that we need to actually solve the problem, and then let's worry about how we make process standardization and growth and so on happen secondary. Both have costs, both have advantages. What we do is predicated towards the second, so how do we create teams? And you know, the language that comes about it is, traditionally you would say, I'm in engineering, I work in this team. What, we, what you say at Coltramp is, I'm an engineer, I work in this team. So there's a different sense of belonging, and there's a different sense of where the value 
values created in the organization. You know, we want it to be as horizontal as possible so that that team itself can own the problem all the way through to the end. And we don't get killed with departments, you know, fighting amongst each other. Would you say it's very much an alphabet model? As in the Google alphabet? Absolutely. Uh, Google's relatively functional to my understanding. I mean, it's obviously a massively large organization, so I'm sure they do a lot of different things. At the org level, I guess it is in the sense that what they've done is they've created uh, semi-autonomous groups through the company structure that are allowed to go off and solve those problems and have all their own local resources. I guess the difference is they're doing that as a 60,000 person massive business. We're doing it as a 60 person startup. That is one of the interesting things where people, when I talk to people about it, they're like, okay, I see companies trying and do what you're doing later because they hit those problems. I'm interested to see what happens when you try and optimize for that early. How do you think about that then when you look at the kind of inherently scale scaling process that's coming into effect for you in the next few years and the, the growth of the team that we will see? How do you look re- to retain that uh, kind of inherently structured but messy culture as you scale from a 60 to a 200 to a 500 man company? Are there any potential challenges that you're really thinking about and looking to overcome? truckloads <laughs> <laughs> that's another yeah, podcast I mean, yeah yeah i mean we're certainly not alone in this and you know there are plenty of companies in the valley and abroad that talk about their approach and there are things like holacracy and and so on you know i've looked at a lot of those i've experimented with some of them you know i have particular challenges with some of the approaches so for me one of the challenges i have with holacracy is besides the fact i feel like i'm reading a star trek manual it tends to encourage a lot of plurality of roles so the idea is that you are doing many different things and for me that fights against a lot of the focus that's required to be successful. So we, we've strived to somewhat do our own path, but we're certainly not making this stuff up. We're pulling it from, from other people and other experiences. And the book that I mentioned earlier, General McChrystal's Team of Teams, is fascinating because he's actually talking about he was the second general into Iraq, and he basically inherited a problem where he said, we could not move fast enough or respond fast enough to be effective. And so we had to change everything from top to bottom. And this is in a war zone. I mean, compared to doing what we're doing in running a business, you know, he had much weightier things on his hand than, than we do. And so I took a lot of inspiration from that in the sense of how he applied some of these things pragmatically. But at its core, there has to be a belief that everybody has to share, which is that whilst it looks nice on paper to create a spreadsheet scaling model, I'm just going to hire three more SDRs here. And when those three SDRs do, I'm going to hire this salesperson, this person, this person. Once you've done it a few times, you realize that it looks great on paper and doesn't work in reality. And it's actually much better to focus on creating teams that stick together and giving the work to teams rather than the teams to work. And so, so it's almost an element of faith to begin with. And then once you have that, everything else flows from that as a matter of course. So how do we design an organization that will thrive in that environment? How do we create an organization where we deliberately connect across groups and we share information almost as a matter of course? Can I ask, is this structural design something that was always front and center for you from day one? Or is it something that when you got to 10 people, you realized that it was a structure that you were looking to build that would be optimal? Do you have to approach it from day one? Now, we, for us, it became a conversation at around 45, 50 people. And so it became us talking about how do we intentionally scale from 50 to 150 and then from 150 to 300. So, you know, 150 is Dunbar's number, which is this uh, social construct of the number of people that we can usefully understand or have in our head at one time. And the theory was that as, as humans, we could think about organizations or groups of up to about 150 people. And once it got bigger than that, we just, we just couldn't cope with that. We had to break it down into subsets. And 
And so there's natural scalings. I mean, I think it was Matt Kohler that said, every time you double, you break, and then you just have to re-knit. And so we, we wanted to do that intentionally. We're going to break anyway. Let's be careful and, and considerate about how we do it because we want to do it in a culture-first way. And we like thumbing our nose at conventions, so let's try some things that other people may not be willing to try. Now, I, I love anything that thumbs and nose at convention. But I do want to dive into a quick fire round that we call the 60-second Sasta. So Didier 60-second Sasta, how does that sound? Let's do it. So let's do the biggest mistake companies make with employee feedback. Not acting. Not acting in terms of not kind of... Um, they listen, but they don't do anything with the data they just got. What's the biggest challenge for you day-to-day with CultureAmp? Helping grow leaders. How do you... So how, how, do, how do we create an environment where people make the people around them better? Is that authority? Is that responsibility? How do you look to do that? I'm, I'm too intrigued. Well, that's actually the challenge, is that oftentimes people think the way you do it is by conferring authority. And it's, you know, I went through this journey myself. When you're coming up, you think, if only I had control, I could I could do it my way and it would be great. And then you realize that the more responsibility you have, the less authority you have. So how do we take people on that journey? How do we equip them with the tools um, to be good at that? Because ultimately, that's the success that we sit upon. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of the Culture Amp journey? That's a fascinating question. Isn't it? What it's one I, of my favorites. Uh, because we were a bootstrap company and we um, denied about whether we were going to take money and then we took money at the A round and then the B round. It's been somewhat of a crash course in learning around the venture world. And so it would have been nice to have a little more of that information. Not that it would have changed any of the decisions I made. You've got the 20 minute VC. Yeah, I wouldn't feel like I was running so fast. I I mean, (laughs) I I cut my teeth reading the very original, um, you know, Steve Blank and all that stuff. So all that stuff was helpful, but it's one thing to be academic. It's another thing to be doing with your own company. How important do you think it is for founders to have a good knowledge of the venture ecosystem and the fundraising environment? It's really good to have some information going in. The real challenge is once you're in it, the psychology of raising money is very, uh, it's like being Schrodinger's cat. You're not alive or dead until the event completes. And it's a really precarious psychological position to be in. So I think it's it's useful to have stuff going in, but what's much more important is when you're in it, who can you talk to and who can you bounce off and who can you learn from? I mean, I had a call with Jonathan Downey from Airware, who's a CEO, he's also a customer of ours, when we were doing our A round. And I learned more in 45 minutes talking to him about the stuff we were going to go through than I had in reading for two years prior, because it was real. I had term sheets and I was actually actively trying to decide, is this good enough? Is it not good enough? Should I care? Should I not care? You know, I'd read all the Bradfield's books. I read all that stuff. Nothing prepared me for actually doing it myself. What do you look for in your investors? Is it advice? Is it intros? Is it capital alone? What was it that made you choose the index and Felicis and Blackbirds? You look for at each stage. You look for different things. There's a few things that are common throughout. So for us, what's very important that is that our investors believe that people and culture matter. Our company is a culture-first company. We're building a product to help other companies be culture-first. And so not all VCs actually believe that. Some people like our numbers, but don't necessarily buy the, the logic. And so it was very important to me that people believe in that. I mean, one of the things that attracted me both to Iden and to Index is that they're very successful in the Valley, but they're not from the Valley. And so we are not either. And so we had that shared common knowledge. The idea that not all great businesses are built in San Francisco solely was important to me. And then probably the most important thing is I want someone that is close enough to my way of thinking that we're not going to fight endlessly. So if I want a mid-market company and they think I should be enterprise, we need to know that up front, but I don't want them to be the same. You know, I want somebody that's going to challenge me. I want somebody that's going to say to me, actually, I don't think you're doing this the right way. 
I think this is good, but that needs to change. That's the key thing that I'm looking for is somebody that's got scar tissue that I don't have to get. Well, Iden certainly has that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but then I want to want to finish the quick fire on your favorite SAS reading material. You mentioned some of the books there that you read. Was there any that really stuck out to you? So from a SAS perspective, I mean, I think a lot of the best SAS materials online, there's things like 20MBC, there's like Jason Lemkin's stuff. I've learned a huge amount reading his Quora posts. I don't know how he does anything except answer questions to Quora. He's, um, he's a machine. He runs a yeah. co-working space, runs the whole content machine, runs a fund, and runs a 10,000-person event. It's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, I think him, uh, the, all the stuff by, you know, Brad Feld and, and the Union Square, most of the stuff I found so valuable were the VCs that were willing to think in the open and that were willing to say what they liked or didn't like and how they liked it and why they liked it. And so that stuff's really useful. As I've gone through the different phases, uh, other stuff's become more useful. So some of the scale ventures and insight ventures and, you know, Bessemer and so on, those things are quite useful because they're quite technical and you can go in and look at a particular thing and get a sense of what other people are thinking. But it's actually, these days, I think for VC, it's, it's less books. But in terms of actual books, it's funny, I had a conversation with today where I said the book that I give everybody on a management perspective was written in 1967. Which and that's that? Peter Drucker's The Effective Executive. Okay. Okay. I'm adding that to my list. And it's it's very small, very tight. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And it's amazing to think that something written in 1967 could help you run a business in 2016, 2017. But I do want to move out of the quick fire and discuss an element that a number of your investors, uh, including particularly Nikki at Blackbird, t- said I had to discuss with you. And that was uh, your sales team, because you mm. decided not to pay sales commission. Um, and you have an incredibly diverse sales team, I think we could say, from Olympic swimmers to people that used to wear Disney costumes. Um, yep. So talk to me about this and why first you decided to go against the traditional model of sales commission and you decided against this. It goes back to thumbing our nose at convention and you know not wanting to do what everybody did. I mean, one of the things that really did surprise me when I came to the Valley and spent time, you know, we have a lot of Valley clients as customers and I got to talk to a lot of them, is for all the innovation that occurs around how we build products and how we design things and the experiences we create for our customers, there's extraordinarily little innovation in how we go to market. There's some amazing stuff done on the growth hacking side, but when we talk about sales, pretty much everybody just reads predictable revenue and tries to make it work. And the problem I have with it, and and to, you know, to be fair, I, I've read it too, and I think it's a great book, and a lot of the things that he says actually fit with my own way of thinking about things too, but people read it and go, okay, salespeople are coin operated. The only way you can get a salesperson to work is to use an incentive plan based on compensation. And in fact, the primary job of your sales leader is to design an incentive plan that will drive the behaviors that you need. Now, the thing that surprises me is there's bugger all research to show that this is true. So, I mean, there was research done in the 50s. If you've ever read Dan Pink's stuff on drive, mm-hmm. uh, on motivation, what, what makes us work, money is useful motivator for low cognitive load work. So, if your sales process relies on somebody calling 100 people a day with a script, then compensation-based selling is a really good way to do it and knock yourself out. You'll probably be successful. But if what you want from your people is high cognitive load, they have to empathize with the customer, they have to problem solve, they have to you know engage with them in a process. And if you start talking about things like account-based marketing and a lot of the ways people are going now, that doesn't work. There's, there's no evidence. And it, I talk to people about it and I say, why, why do you have to pay salespeople commission? And they're like, well, salespeople are very achievement-orientated, very aggressive, they want to win. And if the money's not there, they're just not going to get out of bed. And I'm like, my engineer are exactly the same. I don't have to pay them that way. And so one thing is I just don't 
buy the theory. There is no theory to support that, that I can tell. Um, now, I've had really good conversations with great sales leaders and we've debated this point. I openly admit that part of the reason I take such a hardline stance, and this would be great to have a conversation with Jason Lemkin on it because I know he's on the other side of the fence, is just to be provocative and get people to think. The, the second reason that we do it is actually pragmatic. Because we run multidisciplinary teams, so our customer teams have sales and customer success all in the same team and they work together to build a book of business. So, you know, I guess you'd call that the traditional sort of farming model. But in those teams, we have people that you would call hunters in, in a traditional model. And when you have that environment, it's not going to work if one person makes almost all their money because you land these two customers and the other person who was actually more instrumental in winning those customers pay doesn't change. So you end up with a really complicated model of how do I comp everybody when I don't have sales hidden off in a department so I can do what I want over there and people won't notice. So there's a pragmatic reason for doing it, which is that you either have to comp everybody and then you end up with the most complicated comp structure you've ever existed. And I have had conversations with people where they're like, okay, well, we comp sales this way and we comp CS this way. And, you know, a third's up front and a third's when the cash comes in and a third's on the NPS score. And I sit down and say, why don't you just wipe it away? Because it's so complicated. It can't possibly drive behavior. I, I do have to ask in terms of kind of competitive employment markets. And, you know, you have yep. offices in SF where traditional commission structures are very common. So how do you compete mm. in such competitive employment environments uh, and get the incredible sales team that you do without the commission structures? The thing that's true is that if you don't have great commission, then you need a mission. You need something that people want to buy into. And the thing is, you're still going to have to pay good money for good salespeople. Good salespeople are worth great money. And so you have to put it on the table. What we've found is that people that were traditional, so you mentioned the, the Olympic swimmer before, and I love using her story because when I tell people this is what we do, and interestingly, we've never lost a salesperson. They're all extremely effective. We have very high engagement in our sales team. You know, I tell people what we do and they're like, oh, well, you're not going to be able to get real salespeople then. And I'm like, well, okay, how's this for a profile. Argentinian Olympic swimmer, presence club at ADP, LinkedIn, died in the wall, card carrying, quota carrying, winner to use that, you know, crushes it always. And she works with us. And I asked her one day, I said, what's it like? What's the difference? And she said, well, at presence, when, you, when you're in a place and you're in the president's club, you're proud of what you're doing because you are very achievement orientated. Uh, the events you go to are some of the best events you will ever go to in your life. They put everything on and you feel on top of the world. But the other 360 days of the year, you're miserable because you're fighting tooth and nail for every cent to make sure that you got the cent and the person next to you didn't because that's how the whole model works. Two more cents and you get an incentive to get to the next thing and so on. And she said, now it's very simple. I have to come in and do whatever's in the best interest of the company and I'm a lot happier because of it. And so it's really, we just, we want to target people for whom that's the life they want to live. But seriously, Didier, I was told, as I said, that it would be an incredible interview, both from Aydin and from Ilya and from Nikki, actually, having said that. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me today. And it was so fantastic to hear more about Culture Amp. My pleasure. Thank you for the time. As I said, such a fantastic guest to have on the show and learn so much from him in terms of organizational structures and incentive structures for sales teams. So a huge thank you to him for that and for giving up his time today to be on the show. And again, a big thanks to Ilya, Nikki and Aiden for the introductions today, without which the show would not have been possible. Also, I'd absolutely love to see you on Snapchat and you can follow me there at hdebbings with two Bs or you can check out the new blog at mojitovc.com. I'd absolutely love to hear your thoughts and feedback on that. But before we leave you today, do not forget 
get to check out Algolia. Now, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences by owning the entire stack from engine to server. Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. And for smaller SaaS teams, Algolia is a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search because now SASTA podcast listeners can get one month free at algolia.com forward slash SASTA with the coupon code SASTA podcast. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I look very forward to bringing you Friday's episode.